Well, good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOGS program. The Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools only are interested in two things. One is public education. We want to promote it and defend it, and it needs defending. And the other thing we stand for is separation of church and state, separation of religion from the state. We believe that the state should be secular, and this is the basis of religious freedom. Once the religious people get involved in trying to tell the state what to do, uh, then who's right and who's wrong? Who is sinful? Who is not sinful? Who's going to go to heaven? Who's not going to go to heaven? We don't think that education should be involved in those questions. They are questions for people who are interested in religion. We have a, a very full program for you today. It's not terribly specific because the schools have been on holidays, although we do have a great state school for you. First up, we're going to get Dale to read something that we found on the Diane Ravitch blog site on why a Peter Green believes in public education, because it tells you a little bit about why we here in Australia also need to promote and defend public education. Then we're going to go and look at what the AEU and other interest groups for public education have been doing and what they are doing because they keep on trying to get more money into public schools, but they're not doing terribly well. And the question is why? So we're going to go and have a look at some very interesting articles which have been posted on another blog site, the John Menadue blog site. John Menadieu was a public servant, I believe. He was also an ambassador. He was an ambassador. He was a pretty high-profile guy when he was working, and he's concerned, along with a lot of other people in this country, journalists, academics, and um, others. He's very concerned at the direction that our democracy is taking. And we thought that to explain the problems that the public education supporters have in getting more money into our schools. We would look at two things. We would look at the minders, the ministerial advisors who have been inserted in between the policymakers in the public service and our politicians. We've been brought face to face with these minders, uh, these people who are the ministerial advisors, particularly in the Canberra bubble, with all the sex scandals that we've been hearing about. We're arguing that, in fact, this is a very undemocratic um, situation that has been created in the last 30 or 40 years. And another thing we're going to look at is a very interesting article by a gentleman called Greg Bailey called Lobbyland, the enormous number of lobbyists. It is a real growth industry in the Canberra bubble. And then... Maddie is going to give you the great state school for this week. So let's get on with it. Dale, over to you uh, so that uh, we can hear what Peter Green has to say about why he believes in public education. Thank you, Jean. Peter Green is a well-known blogger, a teacher, a columnist for Forbes and a humorist. He taught in the public schools of Pennsylvania for nearly 40 years and he wrote this article at Diane Ravitch's request. He wrote, I believe in public education. 
I believe in the promise that every child should have a free quality education and not by going out to shop for it, to hunt it down like looking for deals on a toaster or a used car, nor to have to travel far from home to find it, nor to have to beg and apply and hope that the school will accept them, but to have it delivered to them in their own community without exception. Not that we've always hit the bullseye in this country. Our system of tying school financing to housing leaves much to be desired. The same forces of racism and economic inequity that twist and turn our society as a whole also leave their mark on our education system. Those forces include the rise of I've got mine, Jack, culture, in which folks don't want to have to worry about what anyone else needs. We're living through a time of unprecedented assault on public education. Members of the data cult, free market advocates, social engineers, profiteers and privatisers, some sincere in their concern and some motivated by base opportunism, are looking for ways to dismantle the system, disenfranchise parents and taxpayers and to liberate billions and billions of taxpayer dollars. Their ranks are filled with education amateurs who don't really know what the heck they're talking about. What none of these disruptors promise is an education system that delivers a quality education to every single child in the country. Nor do they promise accountability to the taxpayers who fund the system, nor a system that is owned and operated by the citizens of the community. Only public education has these goals as its North Star. I devoted my professional life to public education because I believe in it. I believe in the goals and promise of public education. I believe that every child in this country deserves a chance to learn, to grow, to discover and become their best selves, to learn what it means to be more fully human in a world, a whole host of things beyond the measure of a bad standardised test. I believe in a system that brings trained, qualified professionals into every community for every child. We will always struggle with challenges. What is required for a quality education? How can each child's individual needs be met? What makes a good teacher? But as long as our North Star is the promise of public education and not a higher test score or a better ROI, we can navigate those difficult discussions and we can navigate them in a thousand different ways as individual communities work out the local education system that best suits them. That's the other beautiful part of our public education system. It's not actually one education system, but thousands and thousands of local individual systems set in every kind of community imaginable. All the variety present in America is there in our schools as well. It is a big, beautiful, sprawling, messy monument to our highest aspiration, our dream that every child can grow and rise because we all together work to lift every child up. So I believe in the promise of public education. May we continue to sail toward that North Star. Yes, well, thank you, Dale. That's a pretty powerful piece. And that's where the dogs stand here in Australia. 
This gentleman is talking about public education in America and we're here to promote it in Australia. But we'll have a bit of a break and then we'll come back with press release 887. This is Hugo Race and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. Subscribe now. Well, this is the DOGS program. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools are here every, every Saturday. And here we are again today. Uh, we're Zooming, but we're online and we are working hard, all of us, every week to get this show to air. Uh, and we have a press release, 887. The problems facing supporters of public education in the funding wards, ministerial advisors and lobby land. There are only two of the problems, but they're general problems, and we thought that we'd talk about them. The AEU, that's the Australian Education Union, has launched a funding campaign, again, every election year. The public teacher unions launch a funding campaign. And alongside parents' organisations and supporters, they lobby Canberra as well as state politicians for more funding for public education. They even organise, because there's some very good organisers in the public education sector, huge demonstrations outside Parliament House. This year's no different. Here is the latest heroic attempt of the Australian Education Union to balance the glaring inequalities between private and public education funding in Australia. And Ollie will read it to you. The Australian Education Union has launched a new campaign calling for federal politicians to ensure every school is provided the resources it needs to ensure every child gets the best education, regardless of their background or circumstances. Unveiled before Parliament House in Canberra, the Every School, Every Child campaign imagines the positive difference if every school was provided with the full funding they need for every child to succeed, asking all political parties to fund public schools to a minimum of 100% of the schooling resource standard, which is recognised as the minimum funding requirement to give every child, regardless of their background, the greatest opportunity to, to achieve their full potential, including fully funded loadings for students with disabilities, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students, students from low SES backgrounds, rural and remote students and students requiring English language support to remove the legislated 20% cap on the Commonwealth share of the SRS for public schools, to remove the 4% capital depreciation tax in school funding bilateral agreements, and to establish a capital fund for public schools to help meet rising enrolment growth and infrastructure needs. Across Australia, public schools are making a significant difference in the lives of Australian children, helping to level the playing field overcome disadvantage and achieve excellence for all. That's despite governments failing to properly and fairly fund public schools. Federal school funding legislation and bilateral funding agreements between Commonwealth, state and territory governments mean that less than half of all public schools will reach 95% of the SRS by 2023. Denying public schools the vital resources needed for their students and entrenching school funding inequality across Australia. A report by economist Adam Roris has calculated the overall funding shortfall at $27 billion over the next four years. In addition, with the federal government providing zero capital funding to public schools, the Roris report showed that the cumulative capital investment gap between public and private schools was about $21.5 billion from 2013 to 2018. The Every School, Every Child campaign 
will target political parties to secure public school funding commitments, mobilize school communities, including teachers, principals, support staff, parents, and community members in the lead up to the next federal election to ensure that the broader community understands the importance of properly funding public schools for Australia's children. To join the campaign to make sure public schools are funded properly and fairly, to give every child the opportunity for a bright future, register at www.everyschooleverychild.org.au. Well, thank you, Oliver. That's the press release that they have put on their website. But let's hear from the AEU themselves what they have to say. Hi, everyone. I'm Karina Haythorpe, Federal President of the Australian Education Union. We're in Canberra today to launch the Every School, Every Child campaign, a campaign that is designed to target politicians to make sure that they understand the importance of ending funding inequality for schools in Australia. The Morrison government thinks that school funding is a settled matter. We're here to say very clearly that it is not a settled matter because with more funding we can deliver additional teachers, we can deliver additional support staff, we can deliver those critical learning programs for those students who need help most. And we will campaign in the lead up to the next federal election to ensure that every school has the resources that they need. It's a simple ask. Every school, every child, every child in Australia should have the best possible chance to excel at their education. And that means proper funding for every school. Uh, we should make sure that teachers in classrooms have the support they need to offer every child the individual attention that will help them succeed. School funding is incredibly important to us and with correct funding we would be able to ensure that we address the needs of all children in our schools. Um, that might include things like the continuation of the Tutor Learning Initiative that we have in Victoria to address the needs of children post-COVID or it might be extension programs to help to engage our students that are already achieving at levels. This is nothing new for our teachers. Come rain, hail or shine, they are always there for public education and for our students. I must say I have been very frustrated over the years by the neglect of the federal government of public schools. At the end of the day, every child in every school deserves world-class education, no matter where they live or what their family's bank balance. Too many children miss out every day in our schools because we don't have the resources we need to provide them with the education and the opportunities they deserve. We must see proper and fair funding of public schools and ensure that every child and every school gets the resources they need. Scott Morrison often talks about Australia being a country of entrepreneurs and innovators. Well, such a nation is born in the hearts of every child in every school across this great country. And I call on the Prime Minister to back his words with money and fund all schools, all state schools, to 100% of the SRS. At the moment, governments around Australia don't fund to the level that's necessary for every, every school to be properly resourced. We need 100% of the resourcing level that's required across the country. Our governments are not providing that and it's critical that they do. Every child in every school deserves the support they need to be successful. This means smaller classes, more teachers and more support staff. But this cannot happen while public schools remain underfunded. We call on all parties to properly and fairly fund our public schools for the sake of every child 
in every school. Imagine what we could do in our schools if they were properly funded. In our profession, we could have smaller class sizes, we could have more support programs for students and parents, we could really wrap around our students to support them to achieve the best that they can achieve. So this is a wake-up call to all political leaders out there. We need your commitment to school funding and we need it now. It is so important in terms of levelling the playing field and ensuring that every child has the opportunity to achieve excellence no matter their circumstances or their background. You can join us at uh, everyschooleverychild.org.au and send a very clear message to our political leaders. We need this funding now. Well, there you are, listeners. Even though it may not be an election year, um, the AEU uh, people and even Tanya Pibisett alongside Karina Haythorpe and other union presidents and what have you, are out in force to fight for public education this year. And it would be unfair to say that the AEU have been entirely unsuccessful in the last um, 20, 30 years because some monies have flowed through to public education and disabled students, particularly in the Gillard years, for a little while, but these crumbs pale into insignificance when they're compared with the largesse enjoyed by the Catholic and so-called independent sector. And behind the scenes, the commitment of public servants to the cause of public education in the various education departments has been undermined by the imposition of another level of vice in the political hierarchy, the ministerial advisers. The recent scandals in Canberra have drawn back a curtain on the extraordinary lifestyle enjoyed by these political minders. They act as gatekeepers to genuine, experienced public servants with independent policy advice. And I'm speaking here from experience. Meanwhile, the AEU and parent organisations are forced to fall in behind a long line of much more experienced and powerful lobbyists. For Lobbyland is now the biggest employer in Canberra. But the interesting thing about a Greg Bailey article that we're going to um, refer you to on the Menadu blog, which we're also going to refer you to, is that there's no extensive analysis of perhaps two of the most persistent and powerful lobby groups in Australian education namely the Catholic Church Bureaucracy and the Church Schools Old Boys Network. Greg Bailey does, however, in his article, and we'll hear this later, say that the wealthy private schools with their lobbying and political clout are obstacles to needs-based funding, which is necessary for both equity and efficiency reasons. For your considerations, therefore, we're going to reproduce two of the John Menadieu academic articles. One's on Ministerial Minders by Jack Waterford, and there's another one on Lobbyland by Greg Bailey. But we'll have a little break before we go into this. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. 
Well, you're listening to the Dogs Program on 3CR, and we're now going to go into a very interesting article by Jack Waterford. He's a, he's a journalist. It's entitled, Morrison's Minders at the Heart of His Doldrums. And Maddie and Sol are going to talk, tell us about all this. Gladly. Thank you, Jean. So as we speak about Morrison's minders at the heart of his doldrums, Jack Waterford likes to say, perhaps a day will come when the champion rorters, liars and conscious mismanagers of public resources are before a serious corruption commission and out on their ears. Yes, we'd hope that that some of the the Catholic commission uh, minders were in that category because of the way uh, they have rorted the needs policy system. The political and administrative dominance of the Australian government by non-public service minders in the minister's office is now of such long standing there is not a senior public servant who has advised ministers in a different environment, with many departmental secretaries themselves having worked as political ministerial advisors. It is now so much a part of the Australian political landscape and so much a part of the background of the Australian party system that most ministers on both sides of politics would never imagine working without an um, ever-increasing staff of political operators and minders. Most do not sufficiently appreciate that it is still a new and controversial and particularly Australian feature of government that virtually all departing departmental secretaries particularly from the Prime Minister's department, criticised the way that it has worked in practice, serving to make government less efficient, less transparent and more, rather than less prone, to pushing a minister into making fundamental political mistakes. Gough Whitlam, 50 years ago, is usually blamed for introducing the modern system, but what he created bears little relationship to what we now have. Labor was coming to office after 21 years in the political wilderness and without a single member with any practical experience of government. Many were suspicious, mostly wrongly, of a public service regarded as being increasingly constructed in the image of and with the mindset of more than two decades of coalition government. They feared being managed by their new public service heads and being told by them that many aspects of progressive labour policy simply could not be implemented. But the Whitlam cabinet caravan of minders was fairly small. In total across his whole ministry, a smaller number than the number of people now in Scott Morrison's office. Many were in an event public servants, experienced in practical government and with special policy both program and political skills. Indeed, an early argument against development of the minister's office was that there were significant dangers in being surrounded by a crowd of people of like mind, ever agreeing with each other, predisposed to groupthink, to confirmation bias and tunnel thinking, and often to rejecting many practical or principal objections as being biased or excuses for doing nothing. Better ministers actually encouraged creative tension, but many did not. The more staff there were, the bigger the problem. Malcolm Fraser was critical in Whitlam's period of the build-up of the private office, but he ended his term with one many times bigger. 
Indeed, some departmental heads, such as Treasury Secretary John Stone, were openly critical of Fraser's minders and advisors' secretaries. He particularly disliked advisors without a government background, such as economic advisor Dr John Hewson. Well, isn't that interesting? Because so many of these minders want to have a political career themselves and come quite freshly out of the university. Uh, they're, they're recent graduates from the Liberal Party uh, at say, Melbourne University or Sydney University. And the same goes for the Labor Party as well. It's been a development uh, in the last 50 years. So there is this other tier in between public servants who have experience and policy advice and the actual politicians themselves. And anybody who's worked in policy uh, in the public service would be aware of these wet-behind-the-years minders. For example, we've heard a lot about uh, Brittany and her terrible experience in Parliament House, but we really haven't heard very much about what job she did or what she was qualified to do and uh, where, where all of this came from, including the gentleman who caused her grief. That is information which is actually lacking and the very fact that they are there, why are they there in the first place mm-hmm. when it was always the job of the independent public public servant to give uh, independent advice uh, to the uh, politician. That was a politician's protection. Well, that brings me to the next point. Um, Public servants have memories and must live with their mistakes, but minders obviously don't. They can pass on to be things like lobbyists or consultants or whatever because they've just made networks in the Canberra bubble. Well, uh, the article goes on to say, perhaps because public servants had a continuing responsibility to provide advice and stay on and live with the consequences, they tended to have longer memories than the more meticulous players who flit across the private ministerial advisory stage. The numbers of minors increased under Bob Hawke, Paul Keating, under John Howard, Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard. And to no one's surprise, under Tony Abbott, Malcolm Turnbull, and now Scott Morrison. Hawke, aware of the indiscipline of the Whitlam government, created a committee of advisers to vet and determine which Labour tree people, the sort of people who turn up for jobs, often from state government immediately after a Labour victory, would get jobs. The committee also determined where they worked. Subsequent regimes have maintained the same controls, but having the process created divided loyalties. People in the minister's office effectively answering to or dobbing in to people in other offices, particularly the prime minister's office. The members of parliament staff act sets conditions for minders, but does not set standards, enforceable codes of conduct, or much affect the general principle that a staffer's term is at ministerial whim and certainly ends when the minister goes unless she or he can jump to another ship. Increasingly, in the modern regime, one has to be a true believer, a fervent ideologue in one faction or other of the party, not necessarily the minister's faction. 
predisposed to the policy mantras of that faction or its organs, such as, in the case of the Liberals, the Institute of Public Affairs. So this is very interesting. These young people who join up uh, with these uh, very interesting think tanks or at university can go straight into politics as ministerial advisors and then look for pre-selection. So you have quite a lot of um, people in both the Liberal and Labor parties in Parliament who have really never had a job outside politics. That's why we've got such a very strange bubble. But we'll have a little bit of a break and then Sorrel will come back and tell us about a little bit more about these um, uh, ministerial minders. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. is the dogs program and we've been talking about the ministerial advisors that are for education purposes in between the public servants who are trying to push public education and the AEU and the actual ministers themselves. Um, they are a, a new part of the, of the political hierarchy that has grown up and been inserted and become very powerful and actually very dangerous to the politicians themselves in the last 30, 40 years. But Sorrel is going to tell us about these moral vacuums. That's how he, Jack Waterford calls them, moral vacuums who spend their whole careers on the public payroll before, during and after snaffling a seat. Thank you, Jean. Yeah, so... These moral vacuums, a good many have their own personal ambitions to make it into representative politics and seem to end up on the career track without ever developing the expertise or experience or the character, the personality, the people skills or the empathy with which they can become politicians with a brain. In the Labor Party, the scores of people flitting between union research jobs, labor-oriented think tanks, consultants and law firms, and spells working for labor politicians in both state and federal government have been called suits, bloodless folk, without abiding ideas or ideals or anything in common with those they seek to represent. The Liberals have different but similar bloodlines in party patronage jobs, think tanks, and party and political offices. What they generally have in common is a background of always having worked, one way or another, from publicly funded payrolls, owing political debts to party power brokers, and being precisely the sort of transaction-focused, risk-averse moral vacuums whose increasing dominance in politics is a prime source of public apathy, despair about and suspicion of politicians. 
The culture, including the approach to respect for women on the coalition side, is suffused with privilege and private school backgrounds. Labor had similar problems, but from a different stream. So isn't that interesting? That really describes what we've been observing on our televisions as we have been um, exposed to the Canberra bubble in which Brittany Higgins um, came to grief. He certainly got it, he's got it in a nutshell about these professional politicians who really have got very little to do with the voters that they're supposed to be representing. Uh, back to you, Sol. Also alarming is an increasing tendency for all of these folk to expect that they will be sucking on the public teat forever. Politicians who retire expect handsome appointments to government boards and diplomatic posts. Those defeated to sinecure jobs, such as on the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, from which they cannot be sacked and are generally unqualified. Others jump in consultancies and lobbying industries, prostituting their insider knowledge, access to mates and cronies, and what, if anything, remains of their reputation and moral credit for the right to earn millions in commissions from deals with government. The more key decisions being made in a minister's office by whatever system these have, public servants are less responsible for blatant rorting and abuses of power. But having them as bystanders does not improve the quality of decisions or outcomes. It is allowing inordinate influence to mates and cronies, sometimes cases where ministers seem to act in their own interests or in the interests of colleagues. Mm. Just another unfortunate part of modern government, some might say ostensibly holding their noses, or others, such as Gladys Bajiklian, a significant offender, saying defiantly without apparent fear of political consequences. As ever, but more so, the ministerial private office, particularly the Morrison one, is an accountability vacuum. No one knows what information is passed to the minister and what he can pretend he or she didn't know or took care not to know, even when he should have. Records, whether they are kept at all, are said to be totally exempt from FOI or legal production, and increasingly public servants collaborate in the breakdown of old principles of accountability, transparency, and disinterested action in public interest. Without the modern minder system, we would have not had most of the present problems of the Morrison government. They are, of course, at the heart of the sexual assault, abuse and respect scandals that have so become the administration over the past two months. But the vaccination crisis and the scandals of doling out money to mates without transparency or accountability come from that same system. Mm -hmm. The vaccination crisis did not come from the Morrison government accepting the independent views of health experts, but from following the advice of consultants rather than public health officials with experience. Coordinated work between ministerial offices has permitted most of the expenditure rorts, though these have been potentiated by the way that some senior public servants have not done their jobs. Perhaps a day will come when the champion rorters, liars and conscious mismanagers of public resources are before a serious corruption commission and out on their ears. At the moment, that presupposes the election of a Labor government. 
one can confidently expect that those in charge of this will not hesitate to re-employ labour tree people in much the same style of bad administration. So that's what Jack Waterford has to say, and he's trying to explain what we've been observing uh, with horror, actually, in the last uh, few weeks coming out of Canberra, as Mr Morrison uh, just doesn't seem to take uh, responsibility for anything, any any decisions at all. But um, we, we've dealt with this because this has been going on since the Whitlam government and since state aid has been given to private schools. We've seen this in the education sector. The AEU, the public education people, have wanted more funding for our schools. There has been many, many um, reports which indicate that the levels of inequality are disastrous. Uh, in the international states, we have been falling behind. But um, the government is listening not to the public education uh, advisors, but to the people at the top of the Catholic education system and uh, the private school system. And their advisors are telling them that they just cannot um, not listen to the private sector, that they might be out of power if they don't. But in fact, the public education system represents 66% of the children throughout Australia. And one of these days, there is going to be a political reckoning. But we'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back to talk about lobby land. It is the biggest um, growth industry uh, for these, what, what I think they call the moral vacuums. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03 94198377. Each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. Well, listeners, you're listening to The Dogs Programme. And you might think that it's very strange that we should be dealing with the, um, uh, the corruption in our central capital, in Canberra, the Canberra bubble, and the minders of our politicians. And we're now going to talk about the lobbyists in Canberra, lobby land. Um, and this material has come from John Menadieu's blog, uh, Pearls and Irritations. Uh, but we're talking about this because we are trying to get a handle on why it is that the Australian Education Union and public school people who have all of the facts and figures in the world to prove that public education has been dudded and dudded badly in the funding wars in this country by the private school interests, why it is that however hard they seem to fight, they can't make much traction. So we're talking about the ministerial minders and the corruption in, in Canberra, and now we're going to talk about Lobbyland. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. Yes, this article is by Greg Bailey. Lobbyland, influencers or influenced? There are many key public issues that we must address, such as climate change, growing inequality, tax avoidance, budget repair and ageing population, lifting our productivity and our treatment of asylum seekers. 
But our capacity to address these and other important issues is becoming very difficult because of vested interests with their lobbying power to influence governments in a quite disproportionate way. We are rightly concerned and distrustful of governments and politicians. We need better political leadership, but lobbyists are a major contributor to the awful political malaise. The corrupting power of lobbyists must be drastically curbed. The swamp must be drained. Lobbying has grown dramatically in recent years, particularly in Canberra. It now represents a growing and serious corruption of good governance and the development of sound public policy. In referring to the so-called public debate on climate change, Professor Rock Ross Garnow highlighted the diabolical problem that vested interests brought to bear on public discussion on climate change. Martin Parkinson, the previous Secretary of the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet, has warned about vested interests who seek concessions from government at the expense of ordinary citizens. Some time ago, the former ACCC Chairman Graham Samuel cautioned us that a new conga line of rent seekers is lining up to take the place of those who have fallen out of favour. In referring to opposition to company tax and carbon pollution reform policies, Ross Gittins in the Sydney Morning Herald said, industry lobby groups have become less inhibited in pressing private interests at the expense of the wider public interest. They are ferociously resistant reform proposals. These problems are widespread and growing, the article continues. There are 252 lobbying entities registered in Canberra with the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. They are the ones that are registered. They're, only, they're registered, but there are many, many more that are not registered, and that's a problem too. These entities employ a significant number of lobbyists. For example, Barton Deacon employs nine lobbyists, Newgate Com Communications 19, Crosby Textor 7 and Grac Causeway 19. Some accounting firms, including three of the majors who undertake lobbying, are not obliged to register. Charitable, religious and non-government organisations do not have to register. On top of these third-party lobbyists, there are special interests who conduct their own lobbying, such as the Minerals Council of Australia, the Australian Pharmacy Guild, and the notorious Business Council of Australia. They should put in there the Catholic Commissions of Australia and the Independent School Union too. These lobbyists encompass a range of interests, including mining, clubs, hospitals, private health insurance funds, business and hotels that have all successfully challenged government policy and the public interest in many ways. Just think what the Minerals Council of Australia did to subvert public discussion on the mining super profits tax and the activities of Clubs Australia to thwart gambling reform or the polluters over an emissions trading scheme and the carbon tax. Only recently, we saw the socially damaging role of the Beverage Council of Australia in undermining expert opinion on ways to address the growing epidemic of obesity. It is a repeat of big tobacco. I estimate that there are 
over 1,000 lobbyists, part-time and full-time, and of all shapes and sizes operating in Canberra. Secret lobbying is pervasive and insidious. It must be curbed and made transparent. With journalism under-resourced, the media depends increasingly on the propaganda and promotion put into the public arena by these vested interests. The Australian Centre for Independent Journalism at UTS found in a survey of major metropolitan newspapers published in Australia in 2010 that 55% of content was driven by public relations handouts and 24% of the content of those metropolitan newspapers had no significant journalistic input whatsoever, relying heavily on public relations handouts. The problem has increased since then. So much of news is based on propaganda handouts by lobbying and public relations firms. Many of the so-called economics and business economists we read, hear and see in our media are in the employment of the banks and accounting firms with their own self-interested agendas. With over 60% of metropolitan newspapers, newspaper circulations in Australia News Limited is a major obstacle to informed debate on key public issues like climate change and our role in Iraq. Essential Media found that the ABC and SBS were the most trusted media in Australia. Not surprisingly, the least trusted were the Murdoch Papers, The Australian, Herald Sun, The Telegraph and The Courier Mail. The interesting thing here is that the uh, Save Our Schools group, which is, a, which is a, an interest group, has managed to get so much of their facts and figures into the uh, old Fairfax papers, the Channel 9 papers, The Age and The Herald. And, and they've done the work and they give their work to the journalists. So, so much of journalism these days, they're saying, is actually not original research. It's what's been handed to them on a platter by the different groups. So we are at least fortunate that within the public sector, there are these interest groups that are prepared to do the hard factual research. And we're very, very, um, very, very grateful, particularly to somebody like Trevor Cobald and Bonner. The health debate between the Minister and the Australian Medical Association, the Australian Pharmacy Guild and Medicines Australia, and the private health insurance companies. The debate is not with the public about health policy and strategy. It is about how the minister and the department manage the vested interests. The lobbying interests in health win time after time. As I have often said, health ministers may be in office, but the health providers and their lobbyists are in power. And that certainly applies to the, uh, the education system. The, health, the education minister might be in office, but it is the Catholic Education Commissions and the so-called independent school lobby groups that are in power because they are getting the money. Well, they're not only in power, they're in the Treasury. They're having a wonderful time like Scrooge McDuck in our public Treasury. But um, now we're going to have a little bit of a break and um, Oliver's going to come back and finish this article for us. 3CR is running a station appeal. We're asking you, the listener, to donate to keep the station going. 3CR relies on the support of our listeners, but we know that many of you are doing it hard. So if you can't, we get it. But if you can, 
Head to 3cr.org.au to make your tax-deductible donation to the 3CR Station Appeal. Well, you're listening to the Dodds Program. I hope you're still listening to us talking about lobby land in Canberra. And here is um, Ollie to just have a few final words. Thank you, Jane. The wealthy private schools with their lobbying and political clout are obstacles to needs-based funding, which is necessary for both equity and efficiency reasons. Much of the policy skills in Canberra departments have been downgraded and policy work is contracted out to accounting and consultancy firms with poor policy skills and no corporate memory. This handing out of work is done in the name of downsizing government, but it gives a major advantage to those the accounting and business associates are close to the large and powerful corporations who are hostile to government. Policy work within the government is now undertaken more in specialist organisations, such as the Productivity Commission, rather than in the departments. Departmental policy capability has been seriously eroded. That makes it harder for the public service to safeguard the public interest against lobbyists with their incessant demands for favourable treatment. Yes, well, um, that is a very sad position. In days gone by with people like Nugget Coombs and so on, we had really top, top public servants in this country. But um, we're in real trouble now with a Prime Minister who keeps saying that he doesn't know what's going on even in his own office. But dogs note that it's at least promising that journalists, academics and public servants are at least thinking about and analysing the problems inherent in the current corruption and lack of transparency in the Australian body politic. And underlying it in education is, in fact, the um, cancer in the body politic, the private school interest in the Catholic education and the independent school um, groups. But unless public school supports are prepared to take on perhaps the most powerful lobby groups in the Canberra bubble, the church and the private school interests, our public schools will continue to receive only crumbs from the funding table. But we come to the the best part of our program, perhaps the Great State School of the Week. Over to you, Maddie. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the Week. State school. School of the Week. Great state schools. State State schools. School School of the Week. School for the Week here on the Dogs Program. It is my pleasure to present the Great State School of this week. And before I do, I'd like to wish Jean an absolutely happy birthday. Happy birthday, Jean. We love you. Thank you so much for presenting this show every week the way you do and and, um, guiding us the way you do. And, And we all appreciate it very much. So as I go into the Great State School, I would like to talk about McKinnon Secondary College, which is something that we touched on last week. And as we discovered, McKinnon Secondary College is a much sought after high school in the southeastern suburbs of Melbourne. So we thought we would look it up on the My School website. And um, the following information is available on the website. This is a very big secondary school. The total enrolment at this school is 2,281, which contains 1,213 boys and 1,080 girls. There are 178 full-time and part-time teaching staff and 64 full and part-time non-teaching staff. 
and 52% speak a language other than English. 52%, however, are in the top socioeconomic quartile and 32% in the second quartile. Only 2% are in the lowest quartile. There are no Indigenous children that attend this school. And it's not surprising that the Index of Community Socio-Educational Advance, the Ixia value of this public school, is 1,118. There's a lot of very wealthy people who aren't prepared to um, spend their money on private education who realise that this is a pretty good deal. Keep going. The NAPLAN results are above average, but all but one student gained an end of school certificate and 72% of the students from 2020 have enrolled at universities in 2021. Um, in regards to the finances, the fees, charges, parent contributions and other private income for this school in 2020 was $4,914,875. I know there's over 2,000 students, but that's that's. Uh... They're very generous with their money, these parents too. Yeah. Aren't but, they? Well, I but I suspect I suspect that they have to put that in because the money's not going in from the government. Because look at the other figures. Yes. The total income of this school is twenty-nine million dollars. $859,539, which is, you know, it's it's nearly $30 million. And the total capital expenditure was $2,549. That means that the cost, the cost of sending a student per annuum to educate a child at McKinnon Secondary College is $13,000. That's a bargain because the resource standard is $14,000. That's right. Isn't it? So that means that the prior, that the actual parents are really putting in for essentials at that school mm. uh, very heavily. Yeah. They, they obviously care a lot about their children's sure. education. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Um, um, and that is considerably less than it costs at most most wealthy private schools, right? Oh, yes, yes. Yes, yes. You're and talking 32,000 a student at the places like Geelong Grammar or, or Scots also, or Xavier. Yes, absolutely. And um, this is a public school patronised by solid middle-class families with an eye to good educational value. You know, you know, no wonder real estate values have skyrocketed in its catchment area. Well, How obviously the parents there have got such big mortgages that they couldn't even consider uh, the uh, kind of fees that private schools are offering. But, um, in fact, the private schools all around the world are in trouble. So you've got places like Harrow in England, which, you know, has got international reputation going online. And for 5000 odd uh, a term, you can get your child into Cambridge or, or Oxford uh, on the name Harrow. Very interesting. So they must be, they must be um, a bit hard up, some of these uh, toffee places. Yes. Yeah. People out McKinnon Way know when they're on to a good thing. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. And I would just like to thank, again, everyone for contributing to this week's episode of the Dogs Program. And you are listening to Dogs on 3CR. You can go to our website at www.adogs.info. Our time is gone, so it's bye for now.
as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe, says I, him standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe, but I'm dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I, takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, I didn't die. Says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill, went on to organize. Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize It's there you'll find your hill It's there you'll find You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.